Welcome to this week's episode of Plot Summary. Ted Bork is here with News Talk KZRG. This is where I take everything that Peter, Steve, and myself discussed this week on the Morning News Watch at News Talk KZRG, and I provide a nice little plot summary of everything that went down this week. So we're going to jump right into it. This week we're starting off with the Biden documents. If you don't know, a brief little history on this situation. Joe Biden was busted with a bunch of classified documents in places that they should not have been. Now, on the surface, that doesn't seem like a big deal. He's the president of the United States. He can have classified documents. Well, where the concern lies is when these classified documents were secured. Now, the classified documents that he had were from when he was in the Senate and from when he was vice president under Barack Obama. Those are documents that, to date, he's not supposed to have. And yet he had them. Now, these documents were found in a number of places, most famously in his garage with his Corvette. They found some in the Biden Penn Center. And this week, the FBI decided that they wanted to keep searching for these classified documents that Biden could potentially have. And the FBI searched his beach home for more classified documents. Initial reports from this story this week came from Biden's lawyer, who came out and said no classified documents were found. The FBI didn't take anything. Joe Biden was involved. He knew that they were coming. It was all coordinated. They're all, you know, working together. It's all hunky-dory. But then later, the lawyer had to actually come back out and recant that statement to an extent. And he had to say, well, the FBI did take some handwritten notes and some handwritten documents that Biden had from his vice president days under Barack Obama. So at first, the initial reports were, oh, nothing to see here. We're all good. Then they had to kind of double back and say, well, actually, they did take some things. Now, the FBI hasn't formally commented on what was found, if anything, but we know some stuff was found, given that the lawyer said, you know, they took some handwritten documents. So that was just another little brick in the Biden document saga this week. And then something else very big came out about that document, what some people are now calling a scandal, full-blown scandal. Now, if you remember where this whole story started was it started in the Biden Penn Center, which was this think tank organization building that Biden had office space in. They found these classified documents in there. They weren't supposed to be in there, and they were documents that he was not supposed to have at that time. The public became aware of this issue on January 9th. That's when this story initially broke, that Biden was busted with classified documents. January 9th, the public became aware of this. Well, as it turns out, it came out this week. The FBI had searched the Biden Penn Center in November before the midterms had happened. Now, there's a couple of links that people were connecting this week. Number one, did the FBI not find them when they did an initial search of the place? Or did the FBI know about the documents before the midterms back in November? and choose to keep quiet on the matter, and then made it public on January 9th. There was a little bit of question about that this week. Why didn't the FBI tell the public? It seems like that knowledge should belong to the public, especially given the public was going to be voting in November. And there was a lot of complaint among conservatives this week, saying that this is a very similar situation to the Hunter Biden laptop story. That story came out, and they pretty much tried to brush it under the rug, until after the 2020 election. Pew Research polls came out, and it showed that a large number of the voting population said that if they had known that Hunter Biden laptop story was real before the vote, it would have affected their vote. It would have made them think differently and possibly vote differently. 
That was research that came out about a month ago. And so now voters were a little upset at this news this week because they were like, well, if I had known that Biden also had secret documents that were hidden, it might have swayed my vote a little bit. It might have changed my perspective a little bit in the November midterm election. But the FBI did not give that information to the public until January 9th, well after the midterms. A little bit suspicious, a little bit strange. And because of that story breaking, Republicans are now a little bit on the offensive. This week it came out Republicans are now in full force, fully mobilized in investigating the Joe Biden document scandal. It is widely believed that the people responsible for these documents, the people that should be answering these questions, that should have the answers to these questions, is the National Archive Committee. There's the National Archives. They are the ones in charge of keeping the National Archives. And a lot of the pressure and a lot of the limelight this week was shifted onto them. Where was the National Archives? What is the chain of command? When somebody like Biden gets a classified document, what does he do with it after? Does he take it home? Do they burn it? Do they put it into a locked safe? What's going on here? These are sort of the questions that people have been trying to figure out this week. Now, Republicans question the National Archives for potentially having some bias. On the National Archive website, there are pages and pages and pages of press releases and information about the Trump document issue. We all remember the FBI raided Trump's Mar-a-Lago home. And he had a bunch of classified documents. He was busted. Bam. He had them. The FBI took them. There are pages of information on the National Archive website about that incident. But there is not a single page about Joe Biden's documents on the National Archive website. People were saying, well, what's going on here? What, what is this? So the individuals, so the Republicans that were in charge of investigating this matter, they asked the National Archives, quote, Why were there no press releases sent on Joe Biden once it was determined that he had classified documents in his possession? End quote. That was the simple question. And the response was quite shocking. The council, the National Archives Council said they did do press releases. They did have that information. They did have those pages, but they were ordered not to publish them. They were told they could not be published when asked who gave you this order. The council said they were not allowed to say who gave them the order. And so now that we're seeing the Republicans become a little more offensive and not so reactive, we're starting to see a lot of this stuff come out. These these investigations are really we're starting to see some of these these issues of a little bit of bias here. And, you know, aside from personal opinion, aside from political leaning, that is, a I would say, a blatant objective bias. They were told they couldn't. They weren't allowed to issue these press releases about Joe Biden and put them on their website. So what's going on here? Now, the Republicans in charge of investigating this, they also found something very interesting is they requested the same type of information on Joe Biden that Democratic Chairwoman Maloney requested on Donald Trump. Democratic Chairwoman Maloney was the person in charge of the Trump document investigation. Now, the Republicans are essentially issuing the exact same, the exact same investigation towards Biden. In fact, the Republicans said they based all of their work off of what the Democrats did right down to some of the letters. Some of the requests were based off of what the Democrats had done. They requested the exact same type of information on Joe Biden when it came to the document issue that the Democrats requested on Donald Trump and the Republicans in charge 
said, quote, in response, the National Archives gave them, the Democrats, every bit of information she requested on Donald Trump, but they never gave us any information. To wit, the Republicans said, it kind of feels like they're stonewalling us. And who is they? The National Archives. The National Archives is not supposed to have a political bias. It's not a Democratic group. It's not a Republican group. It's not a Marxist group, not a communist group. The National Archives is there simply to keep track of all the documents and to provide information when requested information. That's all they do. But there is sort of this bias being played in where the Republicans are now are now requesting the same information that was happily and readily handed to the Democrats, and yet the Republicans are getting stonewalled. They can't, they can't seem to get access to any of the information. Why? This is, this is an investigation that they're engaging in, just like the Trump document scandal was an investigation. We need to get to the bottom of what happened here. The Republicans are now doing that as well. They're getting stonewalled. A lot of confusion this week, a lot of frustration. Something else that um, made some headlines this week on the morning news watch at News Talk KZRG, Donald Trump back in the action here. Um, Donald Trump's presidential run for 2024 has been uh, moving slowly but surely here. And during this time in which Trump is slowly starting to rev things back up for himself, there has been a renewed call to review the Robert Mueller report. And this week there was a lot of talk about that. Now, if you remember, the Mueller report was an attempt to discover what, if any, collusion was happening between Donald Trump and the Russian government or agents of the Russian state during the 2016 election. And if you'll remember, Adam Schiff, who is a Democrat, said that there was direct evidence of the fact that Donald Trump colluded with Russia in 2016. But Special Counsel Robert Mueller, who was in charge of investigating that very question, said in his report, quote, the investigation did not establish that members of the Trump campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russian government, end quote. That was a direct finding from the Mueller report. And yet, Democrat Adam Schiff said that there was direct evidence, and he, was, he told everyone about it. Well, this week, with that renewed call to investigate that very question, Republicans are now arguing that this is proof that Adam Schiff used his position on the Intelligence Committee to potentially mislead Americans. Now, Adam Schiff was on the Intelligence Committee, and once Kevin McCarthy, the Republican Speaker of the House currently, once he took over, he is now kicking Adam Schiff off the Intelligence Committee of the United States. And this is one of the points of evidence against Adam Schiff, is they said, look, you said there was direct evidence, you went on, you went on this huge media tear about it, you informed the whole country, there is direct evidence, we have the receipts. And yet the Mueller report said there was none. Now the Republicans are saying this is clear evidence that the Democrats were lying, that Adam Schiff was purposely using his position on the Intelligence Committee to mislead voters. But Adam Schiff did have a very interesting response. He noted that the Mueller report did find that Donald Trump's campaign manager was sharing internal campaign polling data and their strategy for key battleground states with an agent of the Russian intelligence. The Mueller report did find that. And Schiff said, there's your direct evidence. That's what I was talking about. The Mueller report also claimed that that very same unit of Russian intelligence that was receiving this internal polling data was potentially helping the Trump campaign with a hacking and dumping operation 
and a social media operation to elect Donald Trump. Is that direct evidence? Schiff says so. Yes, it is. However, Robert Mueller, who actually made the report, said that isn't direct evidence. That that is something that is suspicious and worth looking into, but they were not able to to link direct ties to them. And, you know, some people were complaining this week, why are we bringing up this 2016 thing? Why are we bringing up this Mueller report thing? Well, like I said, Trump, his campaign for 2024 really is, it's moving and grooving. You know, this week he started campaigning in New Hampshire and South Carolina, which are early voting states. Um, In both of those states, he delivered a 55-minute keynote speech. His campaign is moving. He's he's starting to get stuff in the works here, and so people are now starting to go back and re-engage in some of this historical stuff that went down in this last decade here and say, did we ever find a solution? Did we ever find the answers to the questions that we had about 2016? Did we ever find the answers to the questions that we had about 2020? People are re-engaging in those questions, re-engaging in that investigative process. And speaking of Trump and speaking of his 2024 campaign, uh, a new polling data came out recently that was very interesting indeed and doesn't look great for Donald Trump. Polls show that Donald Trump is trailing behind Ron DeSantis 42% to 30% among Republican voters. That was a big number that came out this week. Some of the big issues that Republican voters are having with Trump right now is that Trump is, is frankly very tied up in legal cases. In New York, he's tied up in a fraud case. Um, there's a number of lawsuits against him, not just against him, not just against him for political stuff, but also for business stuff. The Trump organization is wrapped up in lawsuits. Ivanka's wrapped up in lawsuits. Donald Trump's wrapped up in lawsuits. I mean, it, it's the list goes on and on. And one of the famous cases that we discussed this week on the Morning News Watch was this one fraud case that Donald Trump is wrapped up in for his personal business in New York, the state of New York. And during that case, he pleaded the fifth more than 400 times. More than 400 times he pleaded the fifth while they're investigating fraud claims against him. Republican voters had some issues with that. And clearly the polling data shows that. 42% of Republican voters said that they will be voting for Ron DeSantis. 30% said Donald Trump. So there you go. Speaking of Ron DeSantis, um, he has not announced that he's running for president yet, though there is a lot of people that are hoping and thinking that he will. Ron DeSantis made some huge headlines this week, not for presidential anything, but actually just for what he's doing over in Florida. Ron DeSantis announced plans for a $2 billion tax aid package for Florida citizens. $2 billion in tax aid for Florida. Now, that tax aid package includes permanent sales tax exemptions on a series of categories, including baby and toddler necessities, baby strollers and baby clothes, OTC pet medication, and gas stoves. Those are the four permanent sales tax exemptions that he is engaging in as part of this $2 billion tax package for Florida citizens. His tax package also includes a one-year tax holiday on all household items that are under $25. Now, this goes from detergent to trash bags to towels to whatever, cleaners, all that. One-year tax holiday for household items under $25. He also noted that there will be no tax at all, at all, on dental hygiene products, toiletries, children's books, children's toys, and all kids' athletic equipment. No taxes on that at all, permanently. He's putting that into the system. So look, 
It's no wonder Ron DeSantis is gaining massive popularity amongst conservatives and Republicans right now. These are the type of tax cuts that everybody has been asking for. Everybody's been wanting forever. Seems like every politician has been promising tax cuts like this. Ron DeSantis is actually doing it. No tax cuts. No taxes on baby and toddler necessities. No taxes on OTC pet medication. No taxes on children's books. Children's toys, children's athletic equipment, no taxes on that. That's a pretty attractive offer for voters. That's a very attractive offer for voters. And that's why Ron DeSantis has been making so many headlines. He's been making some money moves. A couple of major things we discussed this week on the Morning News Watch at Newstalk KZRG domestically. One of them was the IRS. New IRS rules could cause a sizable increase of audits and taxes on Americans who use PayPal or Venmo or these, you know, money transaction apps for sports gambling specifically. The American Rescue Plan Act that was passed back in 2021 as a way to help and aid with COVID, one of the measures in that American Rescue Plan Act amended a code section that decreased the minimum threshold for reporting on third-party settlement organizations from $20,000 to $600. Basically, what that means is during the COVID crisis, when the government was very keen on sending out a bunch of money to these states in the form of the American Rescue Plan Act, in that act, they changed a rule that the IRS is now allowed to audit you. If you don't report a $600 or more transaction via Venmo, that number used to be $20,000. Now, if you don't use Venmo, basically, that's the one I use. Basically, what it is, is it is a money transaction application that you use and Some criticize saying, look, $600 should be reported to the IRS to stop fraud. Unfortunately, the more realistic and real-world applications is that is far too little. That's my opinion. I use Venmo all the time. And here's the problem is that when I was in college, I split rent with my roommates. And we weren't direct depositing each other our, our bank statement information because that's a whole lot of nonsense. What would we do? One person would pay the rent for the month. And the other people would Venmo him, right? It's a very simple transaction. They made it very simple. If I went out to go buy lunch and my friend wanted something but couldn't go, I'd say, great, give me your order. I'll buy it for you and I'll send you the bill and you can send me the money on Venmo. That's simple. There's a lot of honest and sincere, authentic, normal human transactions that happen on those apps. My rent in San Francisco was $1,300 a month. I, I, I went over $600 in the first month of the year through Venmo and I wasn't doing anything illegal. That's why initially it was at $20,000. So that way people like me who use it for normal real world applications like splitting a dinner bill or splitting the cost of gas for a nice little road trip among friends, that's what that app is for. That way we don't all get audited every time we want to split a bill, right? Because the IRS, if it was done through banks, it would be, be considered income. But it's not. We're just splitting a bill. We're just trying to make it even. That's simple. That's why that app exists. Well, in the American Rescue Plan Act, again, that was supposed to help solve the COVID problem. They changed the IRS code. CPA and tax expert Bruce Willie had gone on record and he had said that he thinks this is the largest cash grab by the IRS in recent memory and will likely hit taxpayers like a truck. You ever picked up a Subway sandwich for a buddy and said, hey, and they go, oh, you know what? I don't have exact change to pay for it. Great. Venmo me. That's all it is. It's a legitimate it's a legitimate tool of convenience. Do people use it for fraud? Absolutely they do. That's why there was the $20,000 minimum. 
If there are more than $20,000 worth of transactions on your Venmo, you need to report that. That's suspicious. 600 That's more than I was doing in a month just to pay the rent. That's far too little. It's just not very realistic. And this very issue brought to the forefront a big debate this week, and that was these massive multi-subject bills that are being passed. The American Rescue Plan Act was pitched as a way to help businesses and local governments from going bankrupt during the pandemic, during the shutdowns. Stores were shut down. They, people needed help, so they looked to the federal government to say, hey, you know that tax money we send you? Can you send some of it back our way so that we, we don't go out of business during this once-in-a-lifetime pandemic? And they said, sure, we'll pass a bill that says we can. Why was the IRS, why was there an IRS component to that? Why was there a Venmo component to that? Money going back to state governments and small businesses during the pandemic, that should have been one vote. A second vote, separate from that, should have been a discussion to lower the minimum threshold for reporting third-party settlement transactions. That should have been a separate vote. A third vote should be about laws of what is considered animal abuse. Those are three different votes. Three, those three things should not all be in one single package called the American Rescue Plan Act. That was a big topic that was discussed this week, and it really did renew this call to action of politicians saying no more. We need to have bills that are one subject only, not this seven subject bill thing. And if we want, if we like one of the things, we have to vote yes on all the other things that we don't like. These should all be different topics. A couple of other domestic monetary issues that were discussed this week on the Morning News Watch News Talk KZRG. House Democrats want to give federal employees, federal workers, an 8.7% pay increase. What made headlines was not that they wanted to give them a pay raise. What made the headlines was why they wanted to give them a pay raise. House Democrats said they want to give workers this pay increase because they had to suffer through COVID-19 and Donald Trump. <laughs> A Democrat from Virginia said, quote, for years now, federal employees have risked their health and safety working on the front lines of this pandemic. They were subjected to the Trump administration's cruel personal attacks, unsafe work environments, pay freezes, government shutdowns, furloughs and mindless across the board hiring freezes. Federal employees are the government's single greatest asset and they deserved better, end quote. That was from Jerry Conley, Democrat from Virginia. So pretty much what they're saying is because these poor, poor people had to work under Donald Trump, which, by the way, most of the federal employees they're talking about never actually worked directly under Donald Trump. They worked under Donald Trump in the sense that he was the president and they were federal employees. But it's not like they were working side by side with him. And so that's why they're saying they want to do this pay raise as a way to helping the little guy. Well, a couple of Republicans pointed out that. An 8.7% increase, as listed in what the House Democrats are asking for, is the minimum increase needed to offset checking accounts of public servants due to inflation. And it is a critical tool for recruiting and retaining the workforce. So essentially what Republicans are saying is that your 8.7% increase is the exact increase needed to offset the inflation that is brought to you by the Democratic Party. Now, the Democrats can't say we want to increase federal worker pay to offset inflation. They can't say that because keep in mind, the Democrats were in denial about the inflation for a very long time. They, they don't want to talk about inflation. So what they're saying now instead is we'll give you a pay increase because we feel bad that you had to work under Donald Trump.
<laughs> that's their that's their reasoning behind the, the pay increase because they don't want to talk about the inflation issue. Very funny, in my opinion. And finally, the last major piece of economic news uh, domestically in the U.S. here. San Francisco made some headlines this week. San Francisco wants to do reparations for slavery. But the board in charge of discussing how that would work and what that would look like, they said this week that $5 million per qualifying person was not enough per person in reparations. So everybody that they could prove was a descendant of slaves or was affected by slavery would get $5 million tomorrow. And that would not be enough. They want more. And conservatives were very quick to point out something a little ironic in this whole San Francisco reparation issue is that the state of California never adopted slavery. They never adopted slavery. There were never slaves in California. And yet this is a California exclusive deal here that San Francisco wants to do reparations for its citizens and $5 million isn't enough. One board member of this committee said that $5 million is much less than a lot of projections that people say black people should receive for reparation here in the United States. They said that's way less than their projections of what the public would want. I would like to see what polls they're using. $5 million sounds awesome. I would take $5 million tomorrow and be honky-dory. I'd be fine. Keep in mind, I too am brown. So do I get $5 million? I'm Mexican. My family experienced hardships and racism in the past. I'll take $5 million. That's a projection I'm happy with. (laughs) I would like to see this polling data that um, the San Francisco board has that said that people in the United States think $5 million is much too little. Keep in mind, it's $5 million per person. This isn't just $5 million every, you know, $5 million people get $1 each. $5 million for every single person that was a slave or a descendant of a slave. That's a lot of people, man. $5 million? That's pretty sweet. I'll take that. I mean, if you have a family of five, that's $25 million that you have just tomorrow. That's crazy. The border crisis. That was a big topic this week and some very depressing and heavy and sort of ironic news came out this week about the border crisis. Chicago, New York City, and the state of Colorado, all of their leaders said that they cannot take any more migrants. Keep in mind, these are places that very proudly, very loudly stated that they were sanctuary cities and would be open to all, no matter what. These were also the very same places that very proudly and very loudly criticized border states and border cities for saying that there's an issue here, that there's too many people here, and that their infrastructure cannot handle it. Chicago, New York City, state of Colorado, all of them said that anyone that took issue anyone that said they were full anyone that said they didn't have enough resources was racist was a monster and basically shouldn't have a voice and now those very same cities now that they actually have the migrants coming to them said that they can't take any more migrants they said their cities have been overrun and they can't take any more because there is not enough infrastructure new york city saw 40,000 migrants 40,000 migrants come into new york city since this whole border crisis thing started. They do not have enough beds for 40,000 migrants. They don't have enough money for 40,000 migrants. And so how has New York City been dealing with migrants so far? Well, what they've been doing is basically they've been subleasing a series of hotels and putting these migrants into these hotels. They've been paying these private hotel chains taxpayer dollars, so it's coming out of of taxpayer dollars, 
They've been paying them, these private hotel chains, to rent rooms, and they've been sticking the migrants in them. That was the short-term solution that they have been engaging in for a little while now. Well, migrants were being housed in Hell's Kitchen hotels for free in Manhattan. Well, then the state of New York, in New York City, they came up with a more sound long-term plan of what to do with these migrants instead of just keeping them in hotels forever. They wanted to relocate them to a migrant shelter in Brooklyn. They said, hey, migrants, we've been paying for you to live in a, in a nice hotel in Manhattan for about six months now. We now have a migrant shelter set up for you in Brooklyn. We're going to go ahead and transfer you over there for this next stage of this process. Well, the migrants are refusing to leave these hotels. They just won't leave. They just won't go. Uh, when social workers came and said, hey, migrants, we're moving you. They said, no, get away from us. And some of them actually became violent, according to reports. Then the police came in and said, hey, migrants, we're moving you. And the migrants said no. And then New Yorkers saw the police talking to migrants and got very upset. So then protesters, American protesters, liberal protesters, started saying, we're going to defund the police. Get out of here, you dirty pigs. How dare you try and kick these migrants out? Meanwhile, New York City Mayor Eric Adams, who is a devout Democrat, devout liberal, he said, we can't keep these migrants here. We need to have a longer term plan here, people. We can't just keep doing this. But the alt-left are now protesting against the mayor and against police who are trying to move these migrants to a more sustainable long-term solution because they think it's mean to kick them out of the hotels. Now, when all of this started happening, a bunch of reporters started showing up and saying, hey, whoa, what's going on here? Let's take some video. Let's get some interviews. What's happening? What's going on? Well, then the migrants started getting really upset at the reporters, and evidently they started threatening these reporters. One of them actually physically attacked a cameraman, grabbed the camera, broke it, and the police had to come in. The police had to come in and explain to these migrants that in this country, in the United States, we have a free press, and these reporters are legally allowed to record them, that they are allowed to be there. The police had to explain this law to these migrants, which the migrants don't know local law. Fine. That's all right. They're migrants. They don't know. But that was the immediate response, not just from the migrants but from these liberal protesters was anger at the thought of a longer term solution and new york city mayor eric adams said look we're not kicking them out of the country we're not sending them back we're just putting them into a new place but the left they they wouldn't have it they wouldn't have it they would say no if you move them we're going to um call for your impeachment and we're angry at you now so you know look it's nice and fun when you make some big, cool announcement that you're a sanctuary city. A lot of responsibility when the rubber actually meets the road. It's easy to claim all this great positive publicity for being a sanctuary city. Boy, is it hard to actually be a sanctuary city for real. And finally, the last major thing that we discussed this week on the Morning News Watch at News Talk KZRG, Ukraine, China, Russia, NATO. What's going on internationally? What's going on here? There was talk of NATO nations now supplying long-range missiles, warships, submarines, and fighter jets to Ukraine. It is widely believed that this is inevitable, that this will be happening. When the initial armaments were heading to Ukraine, all of NATO nations agreed that they would be sending Ukraine nothing more than defensive weaponry, defensive missiles, defensive infrastructure, defensive weapons, just defense well, long-range missile systems are widely accepted as offensive weaponry. The types of submarines that sent to Ukraine, widely considered as offensive weaponry. Fighter jets, 
widely considered to be offensive weaponry. And all of this is coming after President Biden agreed to send United States Abrams tanks over to Ukraine. Now, if you'll remember, back in November, Joe Biden said that he will not be supplying tanks to Ukraine because if the United States gave tanks, which, which is a weapon with offensive capabilities, he said if they sent tanks to Ukraine, it would start World War III. And that was always the hard line with NATO, that they would not be sending tanks. That was the line in the sand. We're not crossing that line. We'll send you whatever you need. We're not sending tanks. We're not sending long-range missiles. Well, tanks were sent. And days, days after Ukraine received the tanks... They immediately started asking for long-range missiles, warships, submarines, fighter jets, so on and so forth. All of which, it is now widely to believe, inevitable. People think, yeah, that's probably going to be heading to Ukraine pretty soon. That, that was a big thing that came out this week. That this war is ramping up. This war with Ukraine and Russia very much so is ramping up. And while we're busy looking over there at the Ukraine-Russia issue, it came out this week that a four-star U.S. general said he recommends... The United States start to prepare for war with China in no less than two years' time. The clock is ticking here. He said China wants to reunify Taiwan with mainland China. They're hell-bent on it. They are dedicated to it. They are focused on it. They will accept nothing less. Some think that they'll be doing this by messing with the 2024 elections. Some think they'll be doing this by just straight-up invading. But this four-star U.S. general said that he recommends the U.S. start really focusing up. And that war with China is inevitable within two years. Now, on the opposite side of that spectrum, seemingly infamous Democrat Adam Schiff said that he thinks war with China is actually unlikely and that he doesn't think it's going to happen. He thinks that China is too focused on their crumbling economy right now and COVID. Right now, um, you know, it's hard to see here in the four states, but over in China, COVID-19 is still a very major issue for them. They have not figured it out at all. Not even close over there. And so they got their hands tied with so many other things that he thinks that we won't be going to war anytime soon with them. In any case, though, very scary uh, possibilities for sure. And finally, Iran. The U.S. seized thousands of rifles and nearly two dozen anti-tank missiles from Iran, and uh, along with nearly 600,000 rounds of ammunition. All of that was being smuggled across the border, believed to be on its way to Yemen, believed to be used for civil war believed to be used to fund terrorist organizations, supply terrorist organizations. The U.S. was able to stop that along with our French counterparts. Shout out to the French. You guys talk funny. You French have a, a goofy language. But gosh darn it, you did some good here. Stopping all of that armament heading to potentially very dangerous hands. Slowly but surely, the possibility of war all over the world seems to be becoming more and more imminent. It's a little scary. Hopefully we can get it under control pretty soon. Well, that's it. That's pretty much everything we discussed this week on the Morning News Watch at News Talk KZRG. Be sure to tune in next week at FM 102.9, 105.9, AM 1310. You can also tune in on your smart speaker. We have the KZRG app you can download. Check out all of our articles that we post. We also have our eye in the sky camera on top of our studio here. You can get a nice little view of the sunset, the sunrise every evening and night. It snowed last week. We do little time lapses of every single day with that camera. It's really neat. I went and checked out Last week's little snow flurry that we got, and you can actually watch a time lapse of all the snow coming in, and then you can watch a time lapse of all the snow melting away. It's actually really neat. So be sure to check that out. Tune in next week. Check us out on our Facebook page at News Talk KZRG on Facebook. We do a live feed every morning for the Morning News Watch. You can check us out. 
And remember, if you ever miss anything, you can always catch it right here on Plot Summary with News Talk KZRG.